So Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead the last time that we went through this last week. I want to finish the rest of this chapter. I prayed all week long. I listened. I read commentary. And I literally had nothing. I thought, let's just go to chapter 12. It would be easier. And, uh, and then I felt like the Lord showed me a few things that we need to go through in the rest of this chapter. So what I want to remind you, and if you haven't been here or weren't here last week, is that last week in the raising of Lazarus, we were able to see, as Jesus had said, that it was truly more loving to put Lazarus through death and his sisters through grief in order for people to see the glory of God and the greatest miracle that Jesus had performed out of the seven main miracles John talks about up to this point. Hopefully helping people battle against unbelief and strengthening their faith. And if I'm being honest, to preach through these verses isn't always the easiest. I tried to stand up here full of faith for the body of Christ, but just last week, as the week before, as I was preparing this sermon for part two of Lazarus, you know, uh, somebody that I considered a close friend of mine passed away from cancer, and I had been praying for him. People that knew him had been praying for him, and when he passed, I thought, great, this is a week I got to really focus on the raising of Lazarus. And it's challenging. I think about uh, just a week ago, we had another gal that some of you may or may not know, a gal that many of us that are from here grew up with, her 30-some-year-old daughter, who Lori Ingalls had uh, been praying for, went over and visited this gal in Spokane, and she had taken Ashley with her, and they were praying for her healing. Uh, she's battling cancer. I believe she was a mom. Is she a mom also, right? And... Uh, so they were praying for her, believing for a miracle in her life, and uh, she gave her, rededicated her life to the Lord, praise God, and uh, they were continually talking with her, and she just died. And in all of your heart, you're praying for that Lazarus moment, that Lazarus miracle, and it doesn't happen. I think you heard me say in this series that these are actually the scriptures that I have preached at every funeral that I've ever done. For 19 years, I've preached these at every funeral. That should seem odd to you. Because realistically, when I'm preaching these verses at the funeral, that's mean that I'm preaching them at a time and a place where somebody wasn't resurrected. At a time and a place where there was no miracle. It's preached knowing that not every story is going to have this huge miracle at the end. And the question that you have got to be able to answer is if Jesus wouldn't have raised Lazarus from the dead, would he still be enough? as the last song that we sang. Would he still be good and faithful? I looked online, and I couldn't find any pastor that has preached 
if Lazarus wasn't raised from the dead. If he hadn't raised him from the dead, would Mary and Martha's faith still would have been put in him? Would people still have believed? Would they still have thought that that he was good, that even now, the words of Martha? Would Mary still fall at his feet if her brother hadn't been raised from the dead? Would she have fallen at his feet once again? When I sit there and and I process, what if Jesus hadn't raised him from the dead? Would we still be okay with who Jesus is? Would the first six miracles have been enough? Would the fact that he even showed up at all have been enough? Would his love and his compassion have been enough? Because all too often, in the I believe Lord, help my unbelief. Our actions reflect something different. Lord, if only. The words of Martha, the words of Mary. Lord, if only. We have to realize that maybe God not raising what has died is the best thing for us. Whatever it is, whether it's a person that has died, whether it's a dream that has died, believe it or not, whether it's a relationship that has died, whether it's a business that has died, your finances that have died, you've got to be able to be okay and say, you know what, maybe it is the best thing for me. And the truth is, when you're in that moment of that thing, that person dying, you will feel like the best thing would have been for it or them to live. You may even say that I believe in all of my heart that that should have that person should have lived, uh, that that relationship should have lived. I believe in all of my heart that that dream should have lived. You might think completely 100% that the best thing for you is that they would have lived, that that would have lived. But the truth is, we don't know what God knows. And even if we think that it would have been the best thing, it may not have been the best thing for them. For it... Imagine this. I'm sure it was a good thing for Martha and Mary that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. But can you imagine what it was like for Lazarus? Nobody thinks of that poor dude. Like, he's leaping to the rock and he's looking out these little bandages. He was just in the presence of God. He was experiencing something that was beyond our feelings and our imagination. He was in the best thing that you could ever not even imagine, right? All of a sudden, he hears his name. Yeah, like, are you kidding me, God? Is this a joke? Do I really got to go back? What? Jesus should know. He came from here. He can go back. He's got to rescue the world. Why do I got to go back? Right? Does that even make sense? 
Oh, sure, it was good for Mary and Martha, but was it just as good for Lazarus? No. You don't know what the best thing is. That's why you've got to rest on the fact that Jesus does. I heard this story one time about a lady whose husband had passed away, and they went to the church. Uh, He was in the casket. They did the funeral at the church. And as the pallbearers were carrying him out, they had to go down the hallway and turn the corner. And when they turned the corner, they hit the corner. One of the pallbearers dropped his side. The casket fell open. The body came rolling out. And the man came back to life. He lived 10 more years. He eventually died again. They're back at the same church, having the same funeral. The same ball, pallbearers are carrying him out again. They get to the corner, and this time his wife yells out, Don't hit the corner! <laughs> she believed. She was a believer. And so in the story of Lazarus, I have to ask you, was everybody amazed beyond their previous point of unbelief? How do you respond when God shows himself to be faithful and good? Today we're going to look at five different responses to Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. John eleven forty five. He just called him forth. He told those guys, y'all go unwrap him. And then it says this. Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did believed in him. Just pause real quick. I find it interesting that the gospel writer, the apostle John, looking back at all the other letters that had already been written and deciding what he's going to include to help people overcome unbelief in their life in the early church, doesn't even add any details to the rest of this story. Like, I would have wanted to know, like, what was it like? Like, where were you? Do you remember any of it? Do you you remember the afterlife? Like, where were you, and how did it feel? And, you know, and and I'd want to know all of these, these details. Guess what? He doesn't include that stuff. This isn't even really part of my sermon, but, like, if he doesn't think it's important enough for the people to know Is it something that we should all be dabbling in? He skips over the whole thing. If there was ever an opportunity to know what the afterlife was like, you would think that you would go to the guy who was dead for four days. One day passed when everybody else thought it was impossible. Four days. And ask him all of these questions. And if you wanted people to really know what, was, what it was like, you would have thrown it in God's word. And we would all be reading, oh, he, he experienced this and he experienced that. We have that in another book called Revelation. But beyond that, he didn't add any of those details. Why? Because obviously they weren't important enough to help people overcome their unbelief. What I need to know is, is Jesus faithful now? This says that because of that miracle, some believed. 
Now, you know that Mary, Martha, they were there, that they had family and friends, but there was also probably a ton of Jews that came from Jerusalem, some of those that weren't for Jesus, professional mourners, whoever they were, and out of all of those people, some of them believed. Like, I don't know about you, but I would think that if I had just experienced what they experienced, that I would probably be one of those believers, right? I mean, just put yourself in their shoes. You go to somebody else's funeral. Now, in modern terms, that means they've more than likely been dead for four or five days, sometimes seven, sometimes two weeks, however long it takes to schedule the actual funeral out. And so when you arrive, there's a bunch of people there that are helping to honor the person that has died and to respect the family. They're spending time all week long leading up to the funeral. They have family that is usually with them, friends that are with them, right? Not much different from the way it was back then. Of course, there's, there, there is differences. But generally speaking, there's people with you. There's people that are mourning with you. There's people that bring food to you. You care for the family. And, and you're helping them through that initial grieving and mourning process that you show up at the funeral on that day. You know that they're dead. Nobody disputes it. You're about to have the funeral, and in walks somebody who says, Candy, come forth, and out rises Candy from the grave, right, from her coffin. If you're sitting there, right there, and there's a casket right here, and you know because you've helped provide the food that you've been there visiting that person, and all of a sudden, their dead spouse is like knocking. Hey, somebody let me out. You'd be freaked out. Right? If they climb up out of that thing, you're like, they must not have used embalming fluid or something. No sugar and spice wrapped around this guy. Like God did the impossible. And in that case, you would definitely think God just did the impossible. Like he's stumbling out of the casket, and the guy's like, somebody go help him. And then everybody runs up, and they start helping him get out of the casket and everything. There would probably be tears flowing out of our eyes, wondering, like, how good is our God? I don't know about you, but I'd be jacked, right? Can you believe it? This is amazing. This is a miracle. We, we saw a real-life resurrection take place in our church, in our family. Like, like how could you not believe that? And there's people that did witness that. And that was their exact response. I believe. I can't even fathom walking away from something like that and not believing. And yes, that's a big miracle. But do you know that miracles take place around us every single day? If we will open our eyes to the goodness of God. You will hear people talk about things that take place in their life. And it is those things around us and that happen to us that if we will allow ourselves to believe that God is good, it will strengthen our faith and help us to overcome unbelief. But that wasn't the only people there. Verse 46, the very next verse says, but some of them, but some of them, there was some that believed, but some of them went away to the Pharisees 
and told them the things that Jesus did. Like there's some people there that they may have witnessed it. I'm going to say they didn't believe. I don't know that they didn't see what happened. They were just questioning and doubting it enough that instead of strengthening their belief, it strengthened their unbelief. Do you understand? It doesn't mean that they didn't necessarily witness it like everybody else. It was just because of the position of their heart that it, instead of strengthening their belief and being open to God and knowing that he does good things, it strengthened their unbelief. So the second set of people that we see in their response to this is that they're a bunch of tattletales. Like it's really hard, I, I, like I said, for me to even fathom that they could walk away from the side of a lizard, living Lazarus and yet still didn't fully believe. In fact, it wasn't just that it challenged their belief system, but in their eyes, it challenged what they believed so much that they had to go and, and share their unbelief with other people. Instead of saying, Lord, help my unbelief, they're like, hey, I'm going to share this with people that I can find that are birds of a feather that flock together and share my doubts with them, my opinions with them, and we're going to conspire in all of our thoughts about how that actually wasn't probably a miracle for some reason. Like I imagine in those days, because they didn't have the medical technology that we do nowadays, there might have been people that died, right? That they thought died, and then all of a sudden, they're breathing again, or you think they're dead, but, you know, two days later, they recover, and all of a sudden, you know, what you, when you thought somebody was dead, they're all of a sudden doing better in life. Like, there may have been those moments, and maybe they experienced those moments, so I don't want you to just think they easily dismissed it. it might have been uh, close enough that they were able to say, you know what, I, I have some doubts about what really just happened or not. Maybe they had some doubts about this man named Jesus taking credit for something that he didn't really do, forgetting the fact that it was, there was a reason it was four days. However, there was enough that took place in their mind and their eyes that in being challenged about what they believed, that it caused them to really question everything that took place. And the truth is, for us Pentecostals and Charismatics, something we have to remember is that miracles do not always produce believers. Sometimes, even I would like to think, if there was miracles all around us, everybody would believe. And that is not the case. Biblical history will show you it doesn't even matter how many miracles there are around you. There will be some people that will just choose to not believe. You can go all the way back into the nation of Israel, right? And what do we have is they're set free from the great Pharaoh, Satan, from the nation of Egypt, right? You have them experiencing the ten plagues, a God who is so gracious to show himself greater than all of the false gods that the Egyptians believed in. And then when they do leave because he showed himself to be greater, they're able to witness the parting of the Red Sea. Who could dispute the fact that you could stand at the edge of the sea and watch it part and allow you to be able to walk down the middle as your enemy is pursuing you from behind? 
you get to the other side and you see the presence of God shaking a mountain. And then as you progress in life, wandering around, wondering where God is guiding you, how in the world is God guiding you to begin with? But a cloud by day and fire by night. That's crazy. It said they had an angel, an angel for a rear guard, right? Manna from heaven, water from a rock, an endless provision. And do you know why the first set of Israelites died in the desert? Because of their unbelief. You've got to be kidding me. It's the nature of the human heart. They could be in the presence of God 24-7, being provided for by God 24-7. Miracle after miracle after miracle being witnessed in their life. And they still lost the battle to unbelief. It makes me think of Luke chapter 16, right? There's this story of Lazarus and the rich man. Different story. Different, I mean, not different story. Obviously, it's a different story. Different dude. It's not the Lazarus we're talking about. It's a different Lazarus and the rich man. They both die. I'm not going to go through the fullness of the story, but, but the rich man is in Hades. He's being tormented. Life is miserable. He sees the good life of Lazarus the beggar. And he's, he's asking Father Abraham, who Lazarus is hanging out with, like, can I just get, have him dip his finger in water? No, can't cross the barrier. Can you just send Lazarus to my living brothers so that he can tell them how bad this is so that they too will change their lives? And Abraham looks at the rich man and he says, you know what? They have Moses and the prophets. What's he saying? They've got God's word. You know what? All of the living people, they have the word of God available to them. That is all they need, in other words, in order to not end up where you ended up. And you know what his response was? Essentially, God's word isn't enough. If you would just send somebody who's been raised from the dead, then they would believe. That'd be the greatest miracle anybody could ever see, anything they could ever witness. If they could just witness somebody being raised from the dead, then they will believe. And you know what Father Abraham's response was? If they won't be convinced by God's word, they won't be convinced if somebody is raised from the dead. It seems that when it comes to miracles, whether big or small, it requires a response of the heart. Generally speaking, a miracle in your life that you witness will either produce a softened heart and your faith will be strengthened in the softness of your heart, roots will be able to grow deeper, or it will do just the opposite. After marinating in doubt, which is what usually takes place, the heart becomes hardened. And it's that much more challenging to believe. You know, just last Sunday after church, those who don't know, Gordon Mead, he sits right back here. Gordon and Carolyn. 
And Gordon came up and he talked to me afterwards. Of course, there was a Lazarus moment. Uh, was it about six years ago when you had a stroke? Uh, root canal, the brain infection, right? It paralyzed the side of his body. He was in the hospital for several months, and he's had to relearn several things. But ever since then, the left side of his body has been numb. And so recently, he had a really bad headache, and everybody was praying for his headache. And then all of a sudden, one day, the headache goes away. And after six years, he now has feeling in the left side of his body. He's so excited that he can feel his wife's touch, that, that he can feel things that he hasn't felt in years. And now, when you hear that story, some of you may choose to question whether it was God, whether it was his body just finally healing itself, or, or if it was something else. Some will doubt and dismiss and and I want to tell you something, the more often you do that, what will happen is you will harden your heart and you will start to begin to dismiss every move of God that you witness in your life. There's times where I question, trust me, when you pastor in a denomination like ours, you hear a lot of crazy stuff. And usually, people will come to you and they'll say, say something like, you wouldn't believe what God just did. He did this, this, and this. And there's times like I'm like in tears. There's other times where I'm like, wow, really? But I won't dismiss what they believe to be God doing something good and faithful in their lives. In fact, I will just accept it for what they say it is, even in my own heart, because I don't want to give unbelief an opportunity to grow roots inside of my life. I would rather just choose to say, God is good, and give him thanks for every good thing that takes place in our lives. And remember that ultimately he is sovereign. He is the God that is in control of all things. And therefore, he is worthy of our praise. This is exactly what we see happen in the story of Lazarus. There will be those who question the miracle believers. And they want to take what was uh, something that they viewed as not necessarily completely of God and share it with people who will hopefully do something about it. Verse 46 says, some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things that Jesus did. Verse 47, then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and they said, what shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. The third response that we see is the response of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who come together in what is considered the Sanhedrin Council. 
and they feared change in their lives. I know I find it interesting as I read through this that the people who heard about it and wanted to do something about it, you remember these people for the last 10 chapters? Like all of a sudden, they didn't even question the miracle, right? All of a sudden, they believed that he is doing these miracles. There was no question of whether or not this was a sign or signs were being worked. Sure, miracles are happen, happening, but because they can't deny that miracles are happening, they want to do something about it even, even in a greater way. Like, we have got to stop this because if we don't, people will start believing. Like now their fear isn't that the miracles are happening, but their fear is people are going to start believing. And if people start believing this way, then guess what? It will affect our, our attendance. That's true. Do you not think that, that people would have quit going to them as the chief priests and started gathering around Jesus everywhere he went? If people really start believing and they don't have that battle of unbelief in their life, it's going to affect our attendance. It's going to affect our influence. It's going to affect our finances. It's going to affect our status. In other words, if people really start believing in that kind of way, it's, we are going to lose control of the situation that we now have, right? So we have got to get together with a bunch of people that think like us, the Sanhedrin Council. Remember Nicodemus and the story about him? And I explained you know, who the Sanhedrin council was. It was like the Supreme Court of their day made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You had the Pharisees, which were the religious leaders who taught the ways of the Lord, the Sadducees who controlled the temple, but really they weren't into religion even though they controlled the temple. They were like more for Rome. The Pharisees were against Rome. And the Sadducees, they were kind of like political players and people of influence. And so you have these two people together. But listen, when it comes to Jesus, here's what we've got to do. We've got to get together with people who think like-minded. The truth is is there was very little that they thought like-minded about. But it's amazing how a problem like this will bring people together in order to fight against the goodness of God. These are a people who used religion to, to cloak their influence. Like when it came to the Sadducees, they didn't even believe in the resurrection. Any resurrection. They didn't believe in an afterlife. Like, this was a huge problem for them. And so they conspire about what they're going to do. And the real issue isn't Jesus. For them, the real issue is they're about to lose control. They're about to lose who they are. They have this, this fear, and so they find common ground over their fear. If the Jews really start believing in Jesus as their king, here's what might happen. That the Romans will look down upon the Jews, and they'll think that the majority of people are starting to praise another king. They'll come into Jerusalem. They'll destroy the temple, our place, and they'll destroy the people, our nation, and we will all be punished for the belief in this one man. I don't know if you realize how dumb of a statement that was on their part. Because what they were looking for in a Messiah is the return of a man who would perform miracle signs and wonders, who would preach God's word with truth, with power, with authority, and where they missed it 
is that they thought that the Messiah would help them rise up against their enemies and overcome their enemies. Now they have this guy, and the only thing they don't see is the rising up, but they don't even want the rising up. Like, what if he is? You would think they'd be wanting to support him right now. He's going to set us free. But if setting us free means that we lose our power, we lose our authority, we lose our influence, we lose our finances, we lose our status, we lose our way of life, then I don't want anything to do with it, even if it is God. So much for their belief in the Messiah, right? They don't want their lives to be interrupted and inconvenienced. That's what this was about. And listen, the council didn't even know what to do about it. And so who steps up but the chief priest, the high priest, the one who is put in the highest position between God and the nation of Israel, the one who also holds the most political power with the nation of Rome. And here's what he says. Number four, their response, his response, the high priest His simple response is he wants to eliminate Jesus. 49 says this, and one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Listen, this dude, he's so arrogant, he looks at all of the other Sadducees and and Pharisees, all of these religious leaders, and tells them they don't know anything. Nor do you consider that it is expedient for us, which means that it's good for us that one man should die for the people, and not that the whole nation should perish. He wants to eliminate Jesus. That would make it easier. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of God who were scattered abroad. The high priest had what I would consider is a cartel, a religious cartel. What's a good cartel leader do when a problem arises? The simplest thing there is to do is eliminate the problem. Eliminate the person. Now, I think that it's easy for us to look at the high priest and think, man, what a bad attitude to have. That guy probably went to hell. It's easy for us to point fingers at him and judge him. He was bad. He was, he was influenced by his culture. He was afraid that he was going to lose control. He had this fear of losing who he was in life. All these ideas, I'm just going to eliminate the problem out of my life. And the truth is, every single one of us battle with that same issue in our own lives. Because whenever problems arise in our life that challenge us, to, that we're about to to lose control of something in life, what do we want to do? We have this fear that rise up. I can't control this thing that's going on. And so what is the easiest thing to do? The easiest thing to do is for you to eliminate that person from your life. The easiest thing for you is to is able to, for you to be able to eliminate that problem from your life, that situation from your life, that relationship from your life, whatever it is that's going on in your life. You think the easiest thing to do because you might lose control of the situation, of who you are, that it might affect you and it's uncomfortable, is for you to eliminate them completely. And the truth is, as we see in this story, ironically, the exact thing that he says he wants to do is what God wants him to do. 
Like this, we, we hear, you know, Romans 8, 28, God will work all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Like, like God's going to take a bunch of bad things that happen to you and that he's going to turn them around so that it works something good in your life. That what you meant for evil, God means for good. Like to really understand that means that God didn't just jump in after you were drowning in the ocean, but that he was there all along. That he was working these things out in your life that you thought were evil, that you thought were a problem, that you thought were terrible situations, and he makes those things work out for your good in life. It might just be that that person being in your life is the best thing that could possibly happen to you. And you think there's such a pain in the side. Right? Like they are going to be the end of me. And yet, that is God in you. Because he wants a change to take place in your life. These things that are happening to you, they're horrible, they're miserable, they feel bad. You, you question what the devil is doing to you. And God's using the devil to get you where he wants you to be. So that you can have deep roots and be that overcomer that he's always envisioned you being. I find it interesting that John includes a side note here in the story showing that God can speak prophetically through a man who did not even believe in Jesus. What? You know how judgmental the church is nowadays? Always pointing fingers at each other, trying to devour one another. Like, that wasn't God. That person doesn't even believe in God. You should see their life. That, that couldn't have been something that came from God at, at all. Listen, man, if God can use a donkey, if he can use the high priest that is only out for his own selfish reasons, if he needs to, he'll use anybody to bring his word. The exact thing that we sometimes want to eliminate out of our life because of the interruptions and the inconveniences might just be the process God is using to bring about the good that goes far beyond our boundaries. Verse 53, then from that day on, they plotted to put him, in, put him to death. Therefore, Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there into the country near the wilderness to a city called Ephraim, and there remained with his disciples. Some people say that Jesus went into hiding. Jesus doesn't need to hide. He went into a place where he could simply rest, wait, and prepare for his time to come. Verse 55, and the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went from the country up to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Ironically, people are coming there to purify themselves. Then they sought Jesus, and they were seeking Jesus, and they spoke among themselves as they stood in the temple. What do you think? That he will, will he not come to the feast? Verse 57, now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they should report it that they might seize him. 
This is the first half of the Gospel of John, which has covered three years of ministry. The last half of this chapter, as Jesus' public ministry comes to an end, is essentially the last week of Jesus' life. So far, we have seen people who believed, some who did not believe, people who didn't want to be inconvenienced or lose their status in life, and people who would rather eliminate the problem. The final response that I want us to see this morning is at the beginning of John chapter 12. John chapter 12, this is four verses, and I promise I'm coming to an end. Three verses, and then we'll get to the rest of the verses. John 12, 1 through 3, it says, Then, six days before the Passover, so Jesus and his disciples had went to a frame for a little while, they come back to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. But Lazarus was the one, was one of those who sat at the table with him. And then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. We've seen people in the response to the miracle of Jesus, in response to Jesus' goodness and faithfulness, who believe who really don't believe, who are afraid that it might affect their status in life and who they are if they were to accept it in belief, and those who would say, I'd just rather not deal with the issue. But now we get to somebody who not only believes, but worships. Like, there's a different response from the heart. Yes, I believe in that miracle. I believe in the miracle worker and somebody who says, you know what, I'm going to praise you. I'm going to worship you for what has taken place. It says in these, says says here, number five, sorry, old man thoughts going through my head. Actually, lack of thought. Number five, Mary worships. As I stated last week, the first time that we heard of Mary and Martha was in Luke chapter 10, right? And the disciples stopped by their home probably frequently. They know the family very well. The first time that you ever see them, you see a very similar story. I'm assuming Lazarus, who was healthy and alive at that time, was hanging out with Jesus and his disciples, that they were all fellowshipping and eating together. You see Martha serving. And where do you see Mary? Sitting at the feet of Jesus. The very first time we see of this family. And, of course, Martha's complaining. Jesus kind of scolds her about what she's doing and where her heart is and what Mary's doing and where her heart is because she's receiving from the Lord. Now, it's interesting because in those days, more than likely, a rabbi wouldn't have spent his time teaching women. He was teaching men. But he tells Martha, Mary has chosen the better to sit at my feet, and to receive. What radical grace from Jesus in order to allow Mary to sit at his his feet and receive his life teachings. 
And then, of course, the next time we see Mary, we see her again at the feet of Jesus. Jesus shows up four days late. She's sitting in the house, and Martha goes out to Jesus, of course, first, because she's on her feet all the time. She was probably pacing back and forth in the house. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? If Jesus would have been here on time, right? She runs out to him before he even gets into the city, outside of the city. And then when she's done with Jesus, she goes and she secretly tells her sister Mary. And Mary comes running out. And immediately, if you remember last Sunday, it says that she fell at his feet. She said the same words, but she said them from a position of worship. And it is there that Jesus wept. And he went and raised Lazarus from the dead. And now here in John chapter 12, again, these are frequent guests at Martha's house. Jesus and his disciples are once again there eating and fellowshipping, and Lazarus is among them. And I just picture them, they're relaxing, they're fellowshipping, they're having good food. I imagine them telling stories about everything that they've encountered. They're with Lazarus again, and so maybe it's then that they're talking about everything that took place and, and why it took place and the responses of the people and, and just sharing in good fellowship over everything that happened. Lazarus, amongst his new birth, is immediately fellowshipping with Jesus. Martha. She's in the same place she's always been. This time, she's not even being scolded for it. It says that she's serving them. I imagine the difference this time is that she, too, is serving them from a position of worship, that her heart is different. It's been changed. She's not serving because she has to. She's not serving, thinking it's unfair that there's other people getting to sit at the feet of Jesus. She's serving because she loves Jesus. She's serving because she chooses to serve. You have all of this taking place, laughter, full bellies, and then out of nowhere enters Mary. All of a sudden, you see her walk into the room. And she falls down at the feet of Jesus once again. It's an interruption. It could be viewed as an inconvenience to what was taking place. And you're wondering, what is she doing? And all of a sudden, she pulls out this very large bottle of very expensive perfume. A year's worth of wages. I don't know what that is in modern terms. I mean, a year's wages for some of us might be 20000 For others, it might be a few hundred thousand. Let me just throw out an extravagant number, in my opinion, for perfume, like an $80,000 bottle of perfume. Everybody looks at the brand. Holy perfume. And she breaks it open, and she dumps the entire bottle, a whole pint of perfume, all over Jesus' feet. 
And you'd think, what in the world is she doing? I was just enjoying the smell of good chicken. And now all of a sudden there's this crazy aroma. And then, if that wasn't enough, she puts her head down at his feet and begins to use her long hair. She lets it down. And she uses it to begin to wash the oil from the feet of Jesus. What is this that's taking place? We're all sitting here listening to Jesus. We're fellowshipping. We're doing what we men do. And some sort of crazy woman walks in here. She does some crazy stuff and interrupts us. It seems that she's emotional. She's disruptive. She starts doing something that's a little weird. And it was weird. As far as we know, we hadn't seen this in the Bible before, right? Think about this. Some crazy woman that we view as emotional and interruptive in the fellowship of the believers begins to interrupt things by doing something crazy and weird that we'd never seen before in God's Word. That can't be God. She's being emotional right now. What is she doing? Why is she doing that? This almost seems blasphemous for crying out loud. She had her hair up where a good woman's hair should be when she's in public or covered, and she let her hair down amongst all of these men. Jesus is single. Do you not know what that looks like? He's a rabbi for crying out loud. You don't disrespect him like that. How could this really be taking place? She's got to be loony. She's breaking all sorts of cultural norms right now. If you really wanted to look at it, it could almost be looked at as being intimate, as being a little bit sexual, as, as breaking boundaries that should not be broken in public and definitely not be broken in a place like this, in a circumstance like this, in a situation like this, amongst us religious men that are gathering together to really get to know who Jesus is. She's not just breaking cultural boundaries. She's breaking people's personal boundaries. A little bit over the top. Probably wasn't a good look. I would imagine there's a whole lot of people that are sitting there thinking right now, just like those who saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, this isn't of God. What is she doing? They're upset. And there's truth to that. Because what happens next is they do rebuke her for what she just did. One of Jesus' big shot disciples steps up to defend him. Verse 4, Judas, Simon's son, who would betray him. Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii, a year's wage, and given to the poor? Of all the things he could have griped about, he gripes from the position of his own sin. 
Somebody catch that. There's a lot of things you could be complaining about right now or be questioning right now about what's going on, and your complaint comes from your own issue. This he said, not that he even cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. And Jesus stops him. I don't need you to defend me. In fact, let me just defend her for a moment. Leave her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always. But you do not have me always. When society says to stay in the kitchen, when people say you can't let your hair down, when your worship makes people uncomfortable, when there's somebody dancing around without shoes on in the sanctuary, or Brandy shows up for church on a Sunday and is giving a little hoot and holler every now and then, there's something that's going on that makes you uncomfortable and uneasy, and you're wondering why it is that this person thinks they need to do that. Don't they just want all the attention on them? You don't know what she's experienced. You don't know what she's been through. You don't know the depths of her belief because of what Jesus has worked inside of her. You don't know where this passion comes from that she's able to display. These aren't just roots that are shallow, but because of the trials and the tribulations and the hurts and the heartbreak, because of the shame and the condemnation that she's had to fight through all of her life, because of the questions and the doubts that she has, has overcome in life, she's got roots that are deep inside of her, that she understands when God does something, it isn't just something that is for us to say, do I believe or not believe, and start plucking the petals off of the rose of Sharon, but that he did something because he loves us that much that he wants all of us to believe from the depths of our heart, no matter what we see, no matter what we feel, no matter what our circumstance looks like, no matter if it looks like something's dead and the world of Rome is coming against us, I will stand for this man who will give his life for me. His name is Jesus Christ, and I will not be afraid to proclaim his goodness no matter how uncomfortable it makes anybody else feel. She puts aside everybody's thoughts. She lets her hair down, and she says, all of y'all can do your thing, but I'm here to worship. And she honors Jesus with all that she was. She makes a sacrifice like none of those other disciples had made up to that point. I guarantee you none of them had probably given a year's worth of income to Jesus. A year's worth of income directly to him, poured out upon him, the sacrifice she was willing to make. Just think about not only was it a money thing, but a pride thing. Do you not think she knew that those people would think she was crazy? 
that she was breaking boundaries, and yet she was willing to swallow her pride, to humble herself in front of a bunch of naysayers that should have been just the opposite. Do you not think that as much as it made them uncomfortable, that she too was putting herself at risk, knowing that she could have been punished and rejected for her actions? Not only was she pouring out her perfume, she was pouring out her heart. She was pouring out her worship. Mary's response was not only that she believed, but her belief was reflected in her actions, was reflected in her actions toward Jesus. And her desire to honor Jesus, even if it made everyone uncomfortable, it positioned her to be able to be defended by Jesus, even if it made everyone uncomfortable. And the question we leave with this morning is, how do you respond to the miracle worker, to the faithfulness and the goodness of Jesus in your life, or even in the lives of those around you, like Gordon and Carolyn? I pray that the work of Jesus will continually soften our hearts strengthen our belief, and cause us to boldly worship him, regardless of the world around us. Let's stand and pray. Father, I thank you for your word. As we heard today in the book of Luke, chapter 16, as Father Abraham would say, Without anything else, your word should be more than enough. Lord, we stand on your word, the promise of your word. Lord, we don't look to anything else but you. Lord, I thank you that you are good and you are faithful. Lord, I pray that our eyes would be open to the miracles that take place in our lives and around us every single day. And that rather than question or doubt, rather than choose to strengthen the unbelief, we will simply be able to say, thank you, Jesus. You are good in all things, always. Lord, I pray this morning as we have heard your word that the power of your living word would cause our roots to grow deep that we would be strengthened in this season, that when the winds blow, we may be shaken, but we're not uprooted. And Lord, that we will be able to extend forth our branches and continue even in the wind to give you praise. May the strength of our faith be what glorifies you in this world. We give you thanks for who you are. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody says.